So energy levels are kind of a big thing. But if you kind of feel like you're under that stress and that tension, and that is how you feel most of the day, like even if it, there's stressful things happening, you don't have to be stressed out. That's kind of the difference because there's always like stress is like a certain perception, right? Like we talked about perception. We talk about mindset. Just because there are stressful things happening doesn't mean you have to be stressed out. You can be in a more relaxed state. There's a distinct feeling and that kind of comes with being stressed out versus not being stressed out. This can't be it. There has to be more. Wait, am I crazy? No. If you're yearning for more and working hard to make your dreams a reality, then you're in the right place. Welcome to Dreamcatchers. It's the only show committed to helping you self-actualize and then transcend, leaving you with the legacy you've always desired. Listen in on conversations with successful philanthropists, entrepreneurs, and founders every week as we connect with them for inspiration, education, and direction. Your host, Jerome Myers, is here to help you exit the matrix and transform into a leader of your own revolution. The question is, do you believe your dreams should be real? Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Dreamcatchers podcast. I'm your host, Jerome. I've got a niche with me who was in Chicago like two weeks ago. Now he's down in Central Florida. How are you, my man? Doing wonderful, Jerome. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast today. I've been looking forward to it. Man, this is exciting. It's so good to actually be able to get on and chat with you today because I think the work that you are doing for founders, for entrepreneurs, for high net worth individuals is transformational. And so I met you through the fabulous and wonderful Justin Green, if I'm not mistaken. And he always tends to bring high value individuals into my network. And so before we dive into your work, let's kind of get the backstory, man. Who are you? Where you been? And kind of what are you most excited about what you're working on right now? Absolutely. I definitely want to have a, a shout out to our good friend, Justin Green, because you're right. He definitely has some amazing people in his circle. And and I think, you know, I'm definitely glad he connected us because I think there's some, some valuable collaboration, you know, in terms of both how we serve founders. And really what kind of got me started on my journey and my path was like my personal story with mental health, with addiction earlier on in my life, you know, going through my teenage years and twenties, growing up in the state of Ohio, you know, with depression, anxiety, and then, you know, using marijuana and alcohol to kind of cope with that. I'm sure like many of us children do at that point in life. But then, you know, I think my big turning point came for me when I got my brain scanned at the Amen Clinics. Uh, it was 11 years ago in Manhattan and just learning about the brain, learning about neuroplasticity. And for those of you that may not have heard of neuroplasticity, it's the brain's ability to shape itself and respond to our thoughts, our words, the food we eat, everything we do in our environment. And then me falling in love with the brain. And then, you know, here we are 11 years later where I have a kind of concierge wellness business focused on bringing together Eastern and Western medicine to create brain healthy lifestyles for the clients we work with, managing stress, improving sleep, all these different areas to optimize how founders function in, in their day-to-day -day life and in their entrepreneurial journey. Wow. So how do you get to a place where you get a brain scan? Because I think for most people, that sounds pretty far out there. Right. And I think that it's one of those things for me that I went through the whole kind of traditional Western medicine approach. It's very, very heavily focused on, on pills and pharmaceutical interventions. And, you know, you go to the doctor, you tell them you're depressed, they, they're going to give you an antidepressant, but ultimately that antidepressant isn't going to cure why you're depressed. And that is usually, you know, a, a byproduct of kind of deeper things 
going on below the surface. And I think kind of going through that deeper discovery and searching for other modalities out there is kind of what stumbled me on to Dr. Amen and his work at the Amen Clinics. So Dr. Amen, is this guy famous for those folks out there? Talk a little bit about him and why you picked him. Absolutely. So, I mean, I'm actually certified through the, the Amen Clinics and I incorporate their method into what I do because of how impactful it was on my personal life. But they call Dr. Amen kind of America's most popular psychiatrist in the sense that his whole philosophy is how could we be diagnosing mental illness without looking at the brain? Like one thing he says that I love is like when you go to the doctor with chest pain, what's the first thing they do? They recommend an EKG. They look at the heart. Well, the first thing you do when you go to the psychiatrist with depression, anxiety, they don't look at the brain. You know, they typically like to give, recommend some pharmaceuticals, therapy. But he's like, why aren't we looking at the brain? So he started his first clinic in 89, and now he's got uh, about 13, 14 locations all around the country. How'd you find him? It was, I think just, he dealt a lot of media, a lot of PBS specials. He even has a show called Scan My Brain, where he has very high profile A-list celebrities coming on there. And he's in, and they talk openly about them scanning their brain and kind of their journey with brain health. So he's definitely an authority and kind of well-known for, for those that are seeking that type of information. Got it. Got it. Got it. So were you looking for an alternative to being on pills or something? Why go down the path of brain scan and kind of Eastern medicine? Because I think most of us just want to pop a pill and be in a better space. I mean, microwave is the fastest way, right? You, you would think so, right? But I mean, we want to get it's human nature. We want a quick solution to different things, right? Whether it's, you know, quick being able to, to kind of sell a business or, you know, make money quickly, like things in life just take time, especially with health and well-being. And that's where, you know, me just kind of falling in love with the brain. Cause when you think of mental health, it's rather abstract. You know, there's so many different people providing services, doing things to, Hey, this will improve your mental health. It's like, well, what the heck does that actually mean? So that's where the brain, when you say mental health is brain health, which is another thing that Dr. Heyman says, you can take a much more kind of scientific and evidence-based approach to being able to, to optimize oneself and then really actually understand what you're feeling and then what you can do about what you're feeling. Whoa. Mental health is brain health. I don't think I've ever heard anybody say that. What does that actually mean? I mean, how do you know if your brain is healthy? I guess that's a better question to ask. Well, it's what we're never going to know if we don't look at it. But I think, you know, that's obviously the... The the best way is if everybody could get a brain scan, right? Like that's why a big part of the work that I do is encouraging people, hey, like let's look at your brain. Like if you don't have to have something wrong to look at your brain, like let's just see and understand what's going on and what could be better. That way you understand where you're at at a baseline, because if you are feeling symptoms of anxiety, then chances are you're just going to reflect that in your brain. But that those symptoms of anxiety could be coming from four or five different places. So if you say you have anxiety and you need to do anxiety-based treatment, well, if you don't understand how that anxiety is showing up in your brain and which brain patterns are leading to that anxiety, you could be treating it with the wrong thing. In some cases, may not typically not making it worse if you're doing natural things, but like if you're on different medications that maybe the wrong medication with a certain set of symptoms that is appearing as one thing and showing up as another thing can have very detrimental side effects. So... It's not only the prescribed medication, but a lot of people self-medicate with alcohol, marijuana, some people, some of the harder stuff, meth and cocaine. Uh, what, and even the Adderall thing is becoming really interesting to see how people are using that to focus. 
so usually when I think about a brain scan or somebody looking at the brain, there's like some electrical issue, but I don't really hear that as much as like there was like a, a bash, like a concussion or some type of collision that happened and the brain is swelling and they're trying to figure out how much room is in there and if the sack is okay and all this other stuff. But you're suggesting, I think, that you can scan the brain and see what type of chemicals are being secreted and if the vibrations or the frequencies are in the appropriate ranges, am I going down the right path without getting too technical? Absolutely. And I think to kind of get somewhat technical, but not too deep in terms of how it's relevant in day-to-day life, right? Because what you can scan your brain, but ultimately if that data is not going to translate into evidence and kind of outcomes with like clear, concrete objectives, then it it's information. And it may be handy information, but ultimately if you can't use that information, And I always like to explain it to people when it comes to scanning the brain, you could scan kind of for structure and for function. Typically, when you go to get a CT scan and MRI, those are two very common brain scans. Say if you get a stroke or a traumatic brain injury, like you mentioned, that the doctors would recommend. And those are great ideas. Those look at the physical structure of the brain. So if you have a traumatic brain injury, you can pinpoint where that is and then be able to work. But then you have, okay, well, then how does that impact and structure impact the function. So the type of brain scan that we do is called a QEEG. That's a functional scan that looks at the actual way that the brain is functioning. And you can even dictate things about structure, but it kind of goes more deeper into how the brain is not just functioning in individual places, but how it's communicating with other regions of the brain. So the brain talks to itself. (laughs) Very much so. Constantly, every minute of every day. So you mentioned depression, you mentioned anxiety, like, Mm -hmm. do we feel those as a result of a chemical imbalance or like what Mm -hmm. we're talking about the function of the brain, which I don't think most people ever think about. Like they just think, oh, is the brain hurt? And then it's like, yeah, but you can't actually see it functioning. You can, you absolutely can. And that's where there's a whole thing, you know, like we utilize a process called neurofeedback, which is basically neuroregulation. So actually saying, I'm going to take, hey, I'm going to take 30 minutes every day to practice regulating my brain. And then say that you're, then basically you can use feedback to signal when your brain goes into those imbalanced frequencies, like when you're anxious, because there's a very, like your brain typically starts to fire faster in certain areas that can produce those feelings of anxiety. We all know when we're calm versus when we're stressed, that feels differently. So naturally there's going to be different brain patterns that happen when you're kind of on the more stress side of the fence. Well, how do you learn to bring that down and consciously calm that down through breathing techniques, through counting, you know, reciting mantras, positive affirmation. There's all these different kinds of tools to be able to regulate that, that kind of stressful state. And stress is something we all deal with across the board. So you're telling me that I can do things with my body to control my brain. Exactly. Come on, man. That doesn't sound right. You can do things with your body to build big muscle. So why not be able to have that same relationship with your brain? Now, I've only heard neurofeedback in one other place, and that's from Joe Dispenza. How is what we're talking about relate to some of his work, if you're familiar with it? Absolutely. I'm very familiar with, with Joe Dispenza and the work he does. And I think that's where, you know, a lot of what he talks about, he talks about a lot of frequency, a lot of vibrational medicine. 
And I think that's where, you know, understanding that the, you kind of have the two very important organs in the body, you have the brain and your heart. So Joe Dispenza looks a lot like what's called heart rate variability. Typically when we look at, at heart rate, that's the amount of times your heart is beating per minute, right? You have your resting heart rate, your active heart rate, that's a common measure. Heart rate variability is a lot less known. That's the consistency of those beats. And that is like when those beats are inconsistent, that's a large biomarker for stress and kind of heightened nervous system activity. So if you can learn to regulate your heart rate variability through some of these different tools, that's another way that the heart and the brain communicate. So these are just different ways. It's, called, it's a whole larger area called biofeedback. And neurofeedback is just a specific therapy kind of under that larger biofeedback umbrella. So I know some people who have suffered from like post-traumatic stress and they might not be diagnosed, but you can tell by the way that their response is stimulus that their ability to handle them is off, right? They, they might move into an anxiety attack or they, they might just shut down and procrastinate or you might see them just avoid conflict altogether because maybe they got in a space where they were attacked because they stood up or some other thing. When you talk about kind of regulating the brain and neurofeedback, is it really just like the woo-sa breathing? Like, is it really that woo-woo or is it kind of like a little more, I guess, firm for my science people? Sure. So I think where the breathing doesn't get so woo-woo is the, is the actual process of what's taking care like happening in your body while you're breathing because typically when you get stressed thank you, you your breath shortens you're breathing more time per minute less oxygen because you're not taking as deep of a breath so like even if say that you just say sit there and deep breathely well typically you only utilize about 10 to 20 percent of your lungs if you're breathing shallowly in your chest so to be able to do it's a technique called diaphragmatic breathing to be able to expand your whole entire chest, like belly breathing is another name for it, that you can utilize 80 to 100% of your lungs and up intake more oxygen that's going to boost blood flow, boost your brain function and nourish every cell in your body. Hmm. Okay. So Wim Hof does like breath work. Are you familiar with that guy? Like gets in really cold weather and raises his core temperature. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I believe any of that, but I guess it's been measured and he's been out long enough where if it wasn't real, then people would have called BS on it. Is this the same type of stuff that you're talking about here? It is to a degree. And like where I'll say that the slight caveat is, and is there different techniques that you can use to regulate the nervous system? That's everything we're talking about is nervous system regulation. Right. Like different ways to, because when you're, you have your, your whole nervous system around your body, your brain is kind of the central computer that sends signals all throughout the body. Obviously if the mainframe is kind of off, everything's kind of going to be off. So that's where you, you know, the kind of the brain is the center point of it. And then being able to, to regulate your nervous system, like what Wim Hof does, like exposure to extreme conditions helps to desensitize the nervous system. Like if you can go and sit in very cold water and learn to breathe through that, it's going to be able to boost your resilience. I know resilience is a word that you and I have talked about, yeah. like boost your ability to be resilient in stressful situations. 
So you're almost emulating stress. And then the, the cold exposure has different physiological benefits, but there's different kind of techniques and tools you can ultimately use to practice nervous system regulation is really the kind of bigger technique we're all talking about. Wow. So now it just went from we're controlling the brain to we're controlling the nervous system by controlling the brain, by doing things with our body in order to feed back into it. It's just, it's like circular, but in a lot of ways, I think if you haven't wanted to do something before, but you did it anyway, you'll get how the body can control the brain. And I think vice versa, if you've had a craving for something, you didn't feel like you could resist it. You can see how the body or the brain can control the body. And like, for a lot of founders that are out there, you're in stressful environments and you might not always have already experienced something of significant magnitude, whether it's, you know, a $10,000 bill or a hundred thousand dollar bill showing up, or you didn't pay taxes and you thought you were good and you find out you've got a large tax bill or some competitor or client competitor took a client. Hey, we can kind of go down the list of the things that a lot of founders experience having to meet payroll. All of these things happen and you're questioning whether or not, you know, you can make it through, but if you have access to the right techniques, then in a lot of those spaces, you can control it in real time. Now, what does the scan actually do that you were telling us about earlier in the show? Because I think people, you like, there's no point in doing a scan if it's not going to give you any data that you can actually use. So what does a scan do? And then how do you use it to create what I'll call treatment plans, but that might not be the right terminology. Sure. And, and I think being able to scan in the brain, like I mentioned, Dr. Eamon said earlier about, you know, kind of looking at the heart. Well, this way, it's not necessarily like, I think it's kind of highlighting a bigger issue of like kind of our mindset around health when it comes to like, we typically are in a reactionary healthcare system where once we feel something, we get sick, then we go seek treatment. But I think the bigger kind of, especially for being a founder and somebody that's functioning at a high capacity and at kind of high potential is being proactive with our health and using the brain scan as a tool to understand our brain. So that way we could function better in all areas of life and kind of be one step ahead and have our nervous system work for us and like say, oh, well, I'm going into this, this, and this. So no, I, I know I've got to be doing, you know, eating more of this food or doing more of this meditation or doing some of this and being able to know what our body needs out of when it's happening, because you can almost foreshadow stress coming. That way you're not kind of reacting to stress in the midst of it. So by understanding the brain, you can be proactive in addressing imbalances and frequencies because that's what the brain scan shows us to be able to optimize your function and understand where your kind of weaknesses are in your brain health. Huh. So, and a weakness would be tied to where the electrons aren't firing as quickly as they should, or like what would make it a weakness? So. Like I mentioned, we measure electrical activity in the particular scan that we do. We conduct what's called a brain map, and that maps different regions of your brain and different electrical frequencies in terms of the speed of those frequencies. So you may have heard of, you know, delta waves, alpha waves, beta waves, and gamma waves, theta waves. Those are all different speeds of electrical activity that function in the brain and certain types of patterns in different areas correlate to different behaviors. 
So if you say you have heightened beta activity in a particular region of the brain, that could lead to anxiety. And that could also be leading to difficulty sleeping. Because if you're not able to calm your brain down before you try to go to sleep, it's going to be very hard to go to sleep at night. So that's where you could get a lot of us could face insomnia as a result of worrying too much about things that are happening. So that would kind of connect to people saying, I can't turn my brain off. It's just kind of racing, right? Mm -hmm. And so, so about, good, good. I was going to say, we talk about thought regulation, but I think like this kind of goes beyond that and understanding not just, you know, what thoughts we have, but what could be leading to having that many thoughts to begin in the body. Thought regulation, that takes me to meditation. We haven't said that word yet. And I got a buddy who said, stop meditating. But how does meditation fit into the picture? Is that one of the techniques as well? Or are you not a big fan it's, of it? I know I'm, I'm a huge fan of meditation. I would say for myself personally, that was what had the most profound impact for me. Because when I started meditating at the age of 19, I went from being a B and C student in high school to immediately like learning how to get straight A's in school, just from learning how to breathe and regulate the nervous system. So whether you're a child, you know, that's younger, just trying to get good grades in school, or you're an entrepreneur in the midst of a big deal or in the midst of an exit, being able to, to kind of breathe through and calm your system down, meditation can be like daily practice for that. Whether it's five minutes, 10 minutes, like you're sitting there and you're consciously calming your nervous system down. It could even be something you could do for two to five minutes during the day when times get tough. So I believe in a wholehearted thing. So it might be too far of a reach, but I'll try it anyway. There's a chemical the brain secretes called dopamine. And I know that it has something to do with addiction. When you do the brain mapping of kind of figuring out how things are working, are you able to see like when dopamine isn't being released at an optimal level and like kind of, how do you fix it? Is it just mm. you're an addict and you're an addict forever? You just got to figure out if you're going to get the stimulus from something healthy or how does that part work? You know, it's a deep question. I appreciate you asking that because I like addiction is definitely, it's, it's kind of a complicated mechanism and dopamine is like one of the chemicals. It's like a larger chemical interplay. And the brain, like the scan doesn't specifically show you like, you know, oh, you have less dopamine or you have too much dopamine, but genetically some like to think genetically and environmentally, you know, kind of growing up can significantly increase the likelihood of people that could naturally be more prone to addiction. Like there's some people that could just drink, they could smoke, they could do whatever. And it just doesn't, you know, they don't get addicted versus other people. So I think that it's, I think dopamine is a big part of it. But if people watch TV, they get dopamine released. If people eat food, they get dopamine released. It's just the people that are naturally more wired for addiction, that kind of need for seeking that pleasure and that dopamine release is it kind of more sticky. Like it, it, it's more likely for people to kind of want to seek that out at a higher rate is typically what can lead to addiction. But it's a dopamine's a part of a much larger puzzle. It's no, I'm being selfish now because I describe myself as having an addictive personality. Mm. And so some, I'm very selective about what I subject myself to because I have the propensity to fixate on it or be obsessed with it until I can produce whatever the outcome is more often than not. But you're suggesting that the way through either our environment or the way that we process things, we could be wired 
to have more risk than other people. And so one person could do a thing and it's not that big of a deal. And another person's like, oh boy, this is the best thing since sliced bread. I'm going to do this as much as I can. I call it gorging. I'm just going to gorge on it until yeah. there is no more or until I die. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. It's like the limits of kind of moderation and balance are, are kind of a thinner line for others that, so to speak, I mean, different people resonate with different kind of chemical based addictions. There's process addiction. Like I would say obesity, for example, is one of the most misunderstood kind of health conditions. There's a misconception that it may be a lack of willpower around what people eat. And that's simply not true. People that, that are obese and kind of overweight have actually been shown like in their brain that naturally have more dopamine that's released when they eat food. So like they I like obesity can even be viewed as, as a food addiction, right? So that would be considered as a process addiction versus say a chemical addiction to Adderall or cocaine or heroin. So addictions kind of come in different. And I always like to say people have different degrees and variations of addictions. But I think that's where it just, it really comes down to the people and understanding, like you mentioned, you're, you understand that. So you're one step ahead of it. So like, okay, I understand if I go out and I have this drink, like chances are, I'm not just going to be content with one drink versus, you know, my friend who may just be happy with one drink. So the ability to regulate is definitely tied to how your brain works for lack of a better way of saying it. So you do the scan, you get the data and then do you stimulate the brain in another way in order to help it rewire or reshape itself like what happens on the backside of that absolutely so that's where i think the lifestyle is the biggest key so like you know what are we eating are we moving our body you know what different types of supplements and herbs perhaps are you taking to nourish your body what time are you going to sleep what time are you waking up it's the quality of that sleep all those different questions of how you're living your life as an entrepreneur, right? Cause it's easy to get caught up in on the go and everything that you're doing. And like, you know, say, forget, skip a meal or, oh, I've got a big deadline coming up. Let stay up till two o'clock in the morning. Right? Like, cause I've got to get these different kind of things done, but at the same time, it's going to be having an impact on your brain health. So I think learning how to live a healthy lifestyle as kind of a first priority and then as an extension of that, being a higher performer is, is kind of the, it's, it, it comes from an extension of good health, right? It comes back to kind of that mindset shift I was talking about earlier. Yeah. So I call it being in peak performance condition so that you can be a peak performer. Right? I watch so many people and I ask about the quality of sleep and they're like, yeah, I sleep three or four hours a night. I'm just like, I don't know how that can be optimal. So when you do the scan, like, are you able to see if they're sleeping or not sleeping? Cause I hear a lot of people struggling. They're like, yeah, I went to bed at one last night and here I am at the five o'clock workout. I'm like, there was no opportunity for your body to repair, let alone your brain to kind of defrag and reset. How are you performing well, if you don't actually have the rest and recovery period. I'm sure you've heard of brain fog. Like brain fog is a relatively common term that's thrown around in the world. So what happens, and one thing you'd be able to see in the scan of somebody who's not sleeping, like delta waves are kind of the slow waves in the brain. So when you're sleeping, most of your brain is firing in a delta frequency. So if you're not getting enough of that delta frequency at night during the day when you're supposed to be in an awake state, which would be more like an alpha and a beta frequency, like faster moving because you're more alert. 
you're aware of what's happening around you, but you could have ex excessive delta waves during the day when your brain is trying to move faster. Certain parts of your brain is trying to slow down because it didn't get enough rest from the night before. That leads to that feeling of brain fog. And that is something you'd be able to pick up on and, and kind of things we could recommend to be able to obviously get better sleep. That way you can be more clear headed during the day. Wow. Wow. So is it more of taking So you would see the brain fog on the scan. That would lead you to ask a question about sleep or quality of sleep. Do you encourage people to wear some type of monitor so that they know how they're sleeping or is it just hey, try to get X amount of hours of sleep. I think there's all kinds of wearables. Like I'm sure people have heard of the Aura Ring. Like I'm a big fan of the Aura Ring and just understanding. I think that like as somebody that's never, ever say paid attention to their sleep, because I think that that could apply to some people. Having a sleep tracker is a great way to start to understand, you know, like because there could be different patterns. Like, are you waking up more in the night? Do you have a hard time falling asleep? Do you have a hard time staying asleep? Do you wake up early? So there's different kind of nuances as to how insomnia can look. So being able to understand your sleep patterns is a great first step. And then the other thing I always recommend is something called, there's a term called sort of physical hygiene, right? Like taking a shower, brushing your teeth. There's something called sleep hygiene. And we have a morning routine, but one thing that's less talked about is a nightly routine. And I think I'm a big proponent of putting away devices before bed. So understanding like that, hour before bed is kind of a sacred container. You want to like gradually wire your brain down to go from the slower frequencies to the higher, the faster frequencies, to the slower frequencies and do things that kind of nurture yourself to ease yourself into sleep versus say trying to go from like a very fast state to going to sleep. Cause that's typically that transition is where a lot of people struggle with. A lot of people want to unlock their ultimate potential, but lack the strategy, support and stamina necessary to achieve their major goals. They often try to overcome these challenges by trying to do it on their own, causing frustration, fatigue, and eventually failure. We have developed a model for a center life, AKA the red pill, to help them bolster their beliefs, gain clarity on their path to success, and provide accountability as they take action on their goals. When they take the red pill, they rapidly accelerate attainment of their goals and begin to experience a life of significance and impact. Want to find out more? Hop over to JeromeMyers.co. Now, let's get back to the episode. So what would be an example of a typical sleep routine or a bedtime routine or evening routine? You mentioned meditation. There's no better than, than before bed. I think it, it carries its own benefits first thing upon in, in the morning to like being in a more regulated state throughout the day. But, you know, like 10, 15 minutes of just deep breathing, you know, with some calming music in the background, some aromatherapy, you know, things to be able to stimulate the senses in a positive way. Because say if you're watching TV right before bed, that's you're basically taking your brain up when your brain's trying to come down. So that's why you wouldn't want to watch TV for an hour before bed. Zero screen time. Writing. I'm a big fan of writing. So like just, you know, creative thoughts. How did the day go? You can, people can say it's journaling if you want to look at it as journaling, but just going pen to paper, there's something very therapeutic about that and reading a book about something that's kind of feeding you positive affirmations, thoughts, things you're interested in. Like, so even just meditation, journaling and reading during that hour before bed with no screens and you're in a pretty good position to, to fall asleep at the end of that hour. And so 
it's relaxing things, watching violence or some of the other stuff that a lot of people, oh, crime <laughs> documentaries. <laughs> That's probably not the right answer for somebody who's looking to relax and get into no. a space for optimal sleep. Definitely not. And I think like it was almost one of the statistic I heard one time that kind of made me laugh. Like cause some people end out there enjoy horror movies. I'm not one of those people myself, but I know that there's people out there that that may be their genre of choice. And they like, they did studies on like measuring what's happening in people's bodies when they're watching horror movies. Yeah. And they say you burn twice as many calories when you're watching a horror movie versus when you're at rest because your body is in, you know, like you're, think about what happens. You're scared. You're on edge. So your body's actually working harder. So you think about it, doing that before bed, sure, you may burn some extra calories, but naturally it's going to be difficult to wind down from that. And so is working out recommended in the evening as part of the wind down routine or is that? not optimal i wouldn't recommend strenuous workout no because that is once again like revving up your metabolism and revving up your system i think there are certain types of movement so that's where i would say like you know certain like movement like tai chi is a big one yoga like because there's certain like relaxing yoga poses you could do to stretch and relax like say your back or your hips or certain parts of your body where there's tension that like you may get pain at night because I know that pain management is a big thing that could disrupt people's sleep, say if they've got pain in different areas. So I think yoga is wonderful to do before bed. And I think, you know, some people out there enjoy Tai Chi. I think that's also, you know, another, another kind of great tool to where if you want to just move around, but like, if you're trying you know, I wouldn't recommend like bench pressing at nine o'clock at night, like an hour before bed, that's not going to help the sleep. Yeah. My acupuncturist does Tai Chi as well. He was talking about one guy that can do like push-ups with his finger on his fingertips, like one finger. I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. It sounds wild though. So it's relaxing, getting into the optimal state. Is there, you know, I got one buddy that wakes up at 2.48. Is there like optimal times for going to bed and waking up so that you get, you were talking about those waves earlier. I feel like we can get back into the waves now with wake up and go to bed time. So that's where you have what's, what are called your circadian rhythms. I'm sure that, you know, different people have heard of that in terms of if it can vary for different people, I would say what I like to recommend is kind of a good framework for most people. And then kind of fitting it to your life, like plus or minus an hour or two is 10 to six, right? That's kind of good. And I, I think between seven to eight hours is optimal. You can get by on six between six and seven is, and there starts to be kind of a drop off. But if you're getting less than six hours, I think that's where then it's to have major kind of physiological consequences, like heightened stress responses, increased inflammation, decreased circulation that are noticeable during the next day. So I think like you're saying, because when you get into a deep sleep, it's a certain frequency of the brain. Like I was mentioning those delta waves and those kind of delta and theta that you want in most of those areas of the brain happening during sleep. And then like the reason why you don't want to look at your phone first thing upon waking is because you have that first kind of window, like 20 to 30 minutes of when, you know, when you're slowly coming out of that, that foggy state, you don't want to rush coming out of that because if you rush coming out of that and you look at your phone, it's going to purposely make your brain start firing faster and kind of disrupt your transition into a fully wakened state. So it's, it's harsh. Versus kind of easing in and, you know, that's, that's definitely not enjoyable. It's always interesting when I hear people and they're really like fire alarm 
wake up alarms. I was like, why would you want to wake up to that? It's just, it seems like it would just put you in a heightened state. And like now you're in stress and cortisol all from the moment you wake up. And I just don't know how you get back from there. Man, this is good stuff right here, man. Okay, so six to eight hours closer to eight is probably optimal. Now, you said the word inflammation. That's the first time I heard it. And inflammation is being blamed from everything from arthritis to Alzheimer's, man. So can we talk about inflammation and maybe how the brain scans and some of the work that you do might be able to help with some of that? Absolutely. And I think that's where you can, the brain scan doesn't necessarily show like certain levels of inflammation directly, but there are certain patterns that you can guess, right? Like if you're picking up anxiety, anxiety means stress because you can't have somebody that is, you know, prone to anxiety and their brain is wired for anxiety without their having stress. Those two kind of go hand in hand. Stress is your adrenals releasing cortisol and kind of going into that fight or flight state. And whenever you go in that fight or flight state, your body increases its inflammatory response because it's kind of ready for its perceiving a threat. But the average person they say is in that state for four to six hours a day. They're stuck in that state. It's literally called sympathetic overdrive. Like your nervous system, your sympathetic nervous system is stuck on overdrive and you're constantly stressed out. So if you want to get that time down, right? Like, so by, if you notice those symptoms kind of heightened cortisol, which you could pick up through a hormone test, you know, there's certain inflammatory markers in a blood test like CRP, TN alpha, like I don't want to get into what those stand for and what those mean, but they're basically, those are inflammatory markers. So it's not necessarily the brain scan that's going to show the inflammation, but kind of the brain scan combined with these other things that you can say, oh, that person's in a state of systemic inflammation, meaning they have it chronic inflammation all throughout their body. And so four to six hours, I mean, we don't have any saber-toothed tigers. That just sounds outrageous, man. What do you mean people are hanging out there? I mean, that feels like a crisis all day. Like they're running from a, that's like running from a saber-toothed tiger for four hours. Nobody's really set up for that. We're not. Our body is not built to handle that. And that's why things like diabetes, high blood pressure, cancer, stroke, heart disease, are the leading causes of death in this country because there's so many people that are in that heightened state. So by the time people hit the ages of 50, 60, 70, their body starts to, that's when they start to get illness is because that's them compensating for years and years and years of being stuck in this. And like, I don't know if you've heard of adrenal fatigue, but the adrenals are the, the glands that produce a chemical called cortisol. And cortisol is a body, is something that we experience in our body when we're stressed out. So most of people, I would argue, if they recommend getting a hormone test because cortisol isn't typically tested during a regular blood panel, those, that would be elevated. And that would be exactly the sign of what I'm talking about. People kind of stuck in that fight or flight response. And it's not that they are, it's not that what they're doing is wrong, but they're just simply not aware of it because that is where most people function. That's kind of just people are stuck in that state of always being stressed out. and whatever that kind of looks like, you know, being an entrepreneur that carries its own certain thing, but even people working nine to five jobs, this kind of applies to all of us across the board. So adrenal fatigue, you brought that term up, but let's define it just so people really know what it is and maybe some common symptoms uh, other than, I don't know if being stressed out is the symptom, but. 
Being stressed out is more the state. So the symptoms are things like I mentioned, brain fog, you know, lethargy, you know, kind of because when your brain is foggy and you get like sick, tired during the day, that's another big symptom. Like there's no reason you should feel tired during the day. You should feel energized. Like you should feel kind of ready to tackle the day. So energy levels are kind of a big thing. But if you kind of feel like you're under that stress and that tension, and that is how you feel most of the day. Like, even if it, there's stressful things happening, you don't have to be stressed out. That's kind of the difference. Because there's always, like, stress is like a certain perception, right? Like, we talked about perception. We talk about mindset. Just because there are stressful things happening doesn't mean you have to be stressed out. You can be in a more relaxed state. There's a distinct feeling and that, that kind of comes with being stressed out versus not being stressed out. Whoa. Just because stressful things are happening doesn't mean that you have to be stressed out. I think that's a novel concept because it shows that you are actually, I'll use the word in control. You get to decide how you respond to the stimulus. I often talk about the gap and you can choose to react or respond in the gap, but you have a choice. And if you choose to respond, then you don't have to respond at the same level, vibration, frequency, you can come down here and de-escalate a situation instead of kind of spiraling it up like a tornado. Wow. Wow. That's so, like, well, it's all pre-activity versus reactivity that we were talking about earlier. So if you're aware that something is there, you can kind of preload the response to it so it almost feels like a reaction, even though you're intentionally choosing to handle the thing in a specific way. You're basically choosing how you react before you react. Just going to think about that for a second. So you know that you've got this stressful thing. You've got, say you're doing a talk, right? And you've got a room full of 500 people that you're speaking to. You Here know, go. That, I got one oh, Thursday. Here we yeah. go. <laughs> <laughs> so, you, so you know that that's going to be a stressful event, right? So that come five o'clock, I mean, there are certain things you can do that week to kind of prep ahead of time that could alter your week to get ready for that. And, and specific things you do during that day, right? You can have kind of a, like a daily, like say, think of what you do on a day of a talk. You could have a different daily routine to prep yourself for that talk. So you can be in a better state of your control of your nervous system. If you know, you say you're prone to anxiety during talks, that way you can forecast that anxiety and kind of prep yourself to better manage it ahead of time, during it, and then even after. We really do have choice. And I think so many folks live their life without choice. Anish, this has been phenomenal, man. I'd like to wrap these episodes up with two questions. And the mm -hmm. first one being, who else should be on the show? You know, founders, you know, folks who are serving founders, you know, mm -hmm. folks who have exited. If you had to pick one person on the face of the planet to be the next guest on the Dreamcatchers podcast, who would that be? Mm. You know, that, that, that's a good question because I've got several different other people kind of coming, coming to my mind, but I have like a very, very deep kind of healthcare network of other individuals like myself that can kind of share different unique perspectives and different angles, kind of not just on brain health, but overall well-being based on like wanting to work with entrepreneurs and kind of people that, that go through that, that particular set of struggles. And knowing how to put yourself in a proactive state versus a reactive state. And I'd be more than happy to introduce a kind of a few people that I have in my mind to, to the show. Cause I think the more we can have conversations like this are what puts people in a state to have awareness to, to better 
kind of take control of their lives and the way that they manage their stress in their brain. Yeah, for me, the biggest struggle for folks is thinking that their mental health is a one-off condition or they're the only one experiencing it. And if we can have these conversations, then people can get the tips, the tools, the techniques in order to manage state so that they can thrive through it instead of survive it, which I'm just so tired of seeing people try to survive things. I think we've been placed here to thrive and getting access to folks who know how to put them in an optimal state is... I think phenomenal. Okay. Then the final question, man, what's the one thing you want the listeners to take away from this episode? Cause we've been all over the brain and even dropped down in the nervous system. So if they kind of got lost or they fast forwarded to the end, what's the one key concept that they should take away? The mental health is brain health and think proactivity versus reactivity right? Versus reacting to different situations in your life, being able to understand, you know, kind of where your brain and your nervous system is happening, which comes from a deeper relationship with oneself that starts with awareness and then kind of using that awareness as a tool to cultivate positive action in real time and using that to build what I like to call a brain healthy lifestyle as a foundation to live for everything you do personally, professionally, that way you can just be better handled to kind of make what seems like a lot of ups and downs happen in life, kind of bring in the valleys and function, you know, kind of from a higher baseline because you kind of dictate what that baseline is and you can raise that baseline to reach your goals, reach your dreams and really live a life of happiness, kind of where you're one step ahead versus always feeling like you're kind of a product of your environment. But I know that's very easy to kind of feel like that as an entrepreneur with constantly you know, onto the next project, the next venture, the next investment, all that good stuff. Yeah. Being in control is the game or at least deciding, choosing is the game, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of just being blown around by the winds, man, I'm glad you turned your personal struggle into purpose and mission and helping folks achieve the extraordinary. I think so many people believe that they have to stay in this state and you're bringing life and hope to people because they don't have to, they just have to be willing to make a small investment to get a scan and then commit to making some adjustments that are going to put them in a more optimal state. For that, Anish, I thank you so much and consider you a dream catcher as a result of that. If the listeners want to learn more about you and what you have going on, what's the best place for them to go? Absolutely. I appreciate that, the Jerome. I mean, you're right. We're going to take control of our brain health. And, and you know, people want to learn more about me. My name is Anish Chaudhary. I'm the founder and CEO of Soul Physio Lifestyle. And I can be found at soulphysiolifestyle.com. That's S-O-U-L-P-H-Y-S-I-O, soulphysiolifestyle.com. And then I'm also on LinkedIn for those that want to connect with me personally. Yeah, man. Anish connects with everybody before he talks with them on LinkedIn. So oh. it's it's an amazing opportunity. Hey, man, thank you for being so generous with your time and being a great guest. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Jerome, today. It's been, it's been a pleasure, and I look forward to continuing to better humanity and improve the world. And if that's not a mission, I don't know what is. To the listeners, your dreams should be real. We'll catch you on the next episode. Thank you for joining the tribe today. We would love to hear from you. Please don't forget to rate, like, and share. Perhaps someone you know could benefit from what we've discussed. Until the next time, remember that your dreams should be real.